Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, January 9th, 2022, and this is show number 870. I'm really proud of myself that I've gotten the show year correct twice in a row. And you know why? Because I have a text expander snippet that writes it for me. I've talked about Parallels Toolbox many times in the NoSilicast, but it was high time to do a new full video tutorial for it on Screencast Online. If you haven't heard of Parallels Toolbox before, it's a suite of small utility apps that are all available from a single menu bar app. Most of the tools aren't unique in the Mac world. They're not anything to you know, blow your socks off that they do something nobody else can do, but the magic is having them all bundled together into a single consistent interface. I like to think of Parallels Toolbox as buying one of those awesome craftsman tool chests, you know, ones that come filled with entire sets of high-quality wrenches, hammers, screwdrivers, and more, instead of just a hodgepodge of tools from all different uh, hardware stores. The reason I said it was time to do a new tutorial for Screencast Online is they keep adding more and more tools, and they've dramatically improved the user interface to make those tools more discoverable. I really, really enjoyed making this tutorial because it forced me to go through all 40 of the tools and understand every single one. Now, not every one of them made the cut for the video. I didn't have that much time, but I used so many of these tools day to day that it was a real joy to get to teach about Parallels Toolbox. I even learned that Parallels Toolbox is available for Windows too. It's not the exact same suite of tools, but uh, there's, there's complementary tools. Now, I gotta warn you, Screencast Online is a subscription service, but if you're not already a subscriber, you can get a free seven-day trial and watch this tutorial on Parallels Toolbox and as much of the back catalog as you can consume in those seven days. I'll give my usual disclaimer, though. It is dangerous to do the free trial of Screencast Online because you very well might get hooked on this service. This week, I had the great pleasure of being on the Daily Tech News Show on Friday where we finished off the week of CES coverage. Robert Heron of AVXL was on the show to talk about TV tech, and I gave a rundown of the five off-the-beaten-path products I'd like to know more about. Check out Friday's episode of Daily Tech News Show entitled, Robert Heron Picks the Nits. But you know what? You're already subscribed to DTNS and your podcatcher of choice, right? I also had a blast being on Clockwise this last week with Micah Sargent and Dan Morin. I got to meet senior editor at 9to5Mac, Zach Hall, as he was the guest along with me. We talked about making our digital photos into physical media, our experience with external monitors, Apple's rumored audiobook service, and what features we might find appealing for an AR-VR headset. I hope you'll go check out Clockwise in your podcatcher of choice and look for episode number 432. And it's called By Read, I Mean Listen. Tomorrow is Bart's birthday. Happy birthday, Bart! And he decided there's nothing he'd rather do on his birthday than record an episode of Programming by Stealth. So we did not record on Saturday like we normally do. We're going to be recording on Monday. So the next episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond will be coming out tomorrow, as it hasn't yet been recorded. I'll update the NoSilicast blog post segment with the link when it's up. And of course, I'll tweet about it and add it to our Slack so you'll be sure to see it. Heck, you're probably already subscribed to your podcatcher of choice anyway, so you'll get it just as soon as I post it. One of the great joys of the USB-C life has been the proliferation of USB-C docks that are cross-platform for Mac and PC. Over the years, I've tested a lot of these docks, settling on the CalDigit TS3 Plus Thunderbolt dock as my favorite. I did a full review of the CalDigit TS3 Plus three years ago, and I still love it to pieces. 
This sweet little paperback book-sized dock has five USB-A ports, two USB-C ports, two Thunderbolt ports, display port, digital optical, gigabit Ethernet, and audio in and out. With two Thunderbolt ports on the CalDigit dock, you can plug in a Thunderbolt display like the LG 5K or the Pro Display XDR, and also plug in a Mac and get both power to the Mac and video out to the display. And you can also have other USB-C devices, or USB devices, I should say, and some speakers, and you've got everything with just a single Thunderbolt cable going to the Mac. Now, at this point in my story, I've given you a scenario of a relatively normal nerd might set up for themselves. I'm going to diverge into more complexity that has very little chance of relevance to anyone listening or reading. How's that for a hook to persuade you to not jump to the next chapter? Well, anyway, this setup worked pretty swell for me until I decided to upgrade from a USB mic interface to the Universal Audio Apollo Solo Thunderbolt 3 mic interface. Now, a mic interface allows you to use a big girl mic with an XLR connector on it and yet plug it directly into your Mac or PC via USB or Thunderbolt. Now, I switched to a Thunderbolt interface to solve a big problem I was having. The big problem I was having is that USB was not able to keep up with the load when I was recording video tutorials for Screencast Online. I get these little clicks and pops from time to time, and it was super tedious to go, have to go back and re-record my voice over the videos. So giving up USB and going to Thunderbolt has had a beautiful side effect. The only way to be truly sure you've got clean audio is to monitor your own voice while you're recording. Now, this drives some people bananas because USB introduces a slight delay. With the Thunderbolt interface, you can get very close to zero latency so you can monitor your own voice without losing your mind. Now, it turns out there's a lot of USB interfaces, a limited choice of Thunderbolt 2 interfaces, and exactly one Thunderbolt 3 interface that fits my requirements. There's also a lot of huge ones with eight mic inputs and such, but I really only need one mic input since it's just little old me here, and I didn't want to have to sell a kidney for it either. The one option is the $600 Universal Audio Apollo Solo with two XLR mic inputs that I talked about. I wrote a lot about this when I got it back in late August. There's a few issues with the Apollo Solo, and one of them is that it absolutely positively has to be plugged directly into the Thunderbolt port on the Mac. I know, you're crying with me that I have to live with the agony of plugging and unplugging two entire cables. But you know what? When you've lived the one cable life, having two is a very sad thing. With the advent of macOS Big Sur, Apple unlocked some capability in Thunderbolt 3, now Thunderbolt slash USB 4. The change allowed Thunderbolt devices to go through a hub, just like you can with USB devices. Before that, you could only daisy chain them. You couldn't put them in parallel on a hub. A Thunderbolt hub might be the solution to allowing me to go back to a one-cable life. Luckily, for Christmas, Santa brought me the OWC Thunderbolt hub, which runs a rather modest $179 US. This hub connects to your computer via Thunderbolt 4 on the front and expands to three Thunderbolt 4 ports on the back. As an added bonus, they threw a 10 gigabit per second USB-A 3.2 port on the front. Adding the USB, uh, I'm sorry, adding the OWC Thunderbolt hub to your Mac is essentially adding two extra Thunderbolt ports because it takes one and, you know, the math. Anyway, I said this story wasn't relevant to most people, but if you've got an M1 Mac with only two Thunderbolt ports, this hub might actually be helpful to you. Now, for me, the problem wasn't that I didn't have enough Thunderbolt ports because I do have four, but rather I only wanted to use one port on my Mac when at my desk. 
I wasn't sure the OWC Thunderbolt hub would solve my problem, and it took some diagramming to figure out whether it could do what I needed. I opened up my trusty free diagramming tool at diagrams.net, and I got to work. My requirements were that I needed to connect the Pro Display XDR on Thunderbolt, an external USB-C display on occasion, a USB-C SSD for backups, the, uh, let's see, uh, the universal audio mic interface had to come in on Thunderbolt. I needed to have the Heil PR40 XLR mic go into the universal audio interface. I need headphones into the universal audio interface. I need Ethernet through the CalDigit TS3 Plus dock. Power from the CalDigit TS3, P, uh, TS3 Plus dock would go to the Mac and the mic interface because they both needed to be powered. I need external speakers and my Logitech webcam. That doesn't sound like too much to ask, does it? Well, the CalDigit TS3 Plus starts the chain of happiness with power and Ethernet. Next, I can insert the OWC Thunderbolt hub between the CalDigit dock and the Mac. Now, that's important here. The Pro Display XDR and the Universal Audio Mic interface can then hang off of the Thunderbolt hub. So that's a big difference from the way I had it before. With the XDR and the Universal Audio interface going through the hub, this frees up a USB-C port on the CalDigit TS3 plot, uh, dock, and that means I can plug in the portable USB-C display to the dock whenever I need it. That left my SSD backup drive looking for home. Now, I could have plugged it into the open USB-C port on the front of the CalDigit dock, but it's messy to have it hanging out in front on my, on my desk. Turns out the Pro Display XDR has three USB-C ports on the back, which is a perfect place to discreetly plug in the SSD drive along with the Logitech 4K webcam. Now, I can't get away from any mess coming out of the front of my devices because the speakers I'm using have to plug into the front of the CalDigit dock because they're not digital optical. And uh, let's see, the headphone jack on the Universal Audio mic interface is also on the front. I would like to know why companies put audio jacks on the front of their devices. Does everyone but me need quick access to swap out audio devices? I tend to plug them in and then that's where they live. I don't want them on the front. I want them on the back. Well, anyway, it may be hard to picture in your head what I've described, but if you really do want to follow along, the diagram I talked about makes it really clear, I think. It took a lot of iterations to get it right, especially with quality control director Steve telling me when I had my arrows pointing the wrong way for the information flow. I think I've got it right, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if you find one more that I have flipped the wrong way, so be sure to let me know. Universal Audio is absolutely adamant, as I mentioned, that you cannot plug their mic interface into any kind of hub. But you know what? It works swimmingly with this configuration. In my experience of many support emails with this company is that they have kind of an old school view of the audio world, and uh, perhaps they aren't taking into account the glory of Thunderbolt hubbing. They probably also support a lot of PCs, which may not have Thunderbolt hubbing yet in a lot of cases, so that might be why they say that. Now, I have one outstanding question about this new setup. In the diagram, you can see that the CalDigit TS3 Plus provides 87 watts of power delivery. Before I put in the OWC Thunderbolt hub, it was this 87 watts of power that charged my MacBook Pro. In the new setup, the dock connects to the hub and the hub has its own power supply, which provides 65 watts of power delivery. Since my MacBook Pro is plugged into the hub, which one of those two devices is charging my laptop? Might also be interesting to note that the power-hungry M1 MacBook Pros want 96 watts of power. So I've got 87 watts of power coming from the dock and 65 more from the hub. Which one of them is supplying the, the power since neither one of them can supply 96? Now, remember, 
The Apollo Solo mic interface is bus-powered, or maybe not remember, I probably didn't tell you that. The Apollo Solo mic interface is bus-powered, which means it's drawing power from the hub as well. Took some digging, but I finally found the manual online for the Apollo Solo, and it draws 10 watts all by itself. So we got 65 watts coming from the hub, but the Apollo Solo's taken 10 of those, I think. Perhaps, so I started trying to think about how is this working? How is the power being delivered? My first theory was perhaps when the hub sees 87 watts of power coming at it from the dock, the hub just goes, okay, it looks like you've got this, and just passes that 87 watts along to the Mac. It's also possible that the hub simply doesn't deal with the power coming from the dock, and it simply sends its own 65 watts along to the Mac, less that 10 watts stolen by the mic interface. Now, a reasonably knowledgeable tech support person at OWC told me that the more powerful power supply will always win. So that would be the Cal digit would be supplying the power because it's sending 87 watts. But I've got evidence that maybe there's yet another option. Before I put the hub between the dock and the Mac, if I ever used one of the USB ports on the dock to charge something, the Mac would immediately complain that it wasn't getting enough power and to stop that nonsense right now or it would just turn this car around. But now with two devices offering power, I can charge my iPhone via the dock and the Mac makes no complaints at all. My suspicion is that the dock and the hub somehow form an alliance and maybe add their power delivery together, giving the laptop whatever it needs. Now, I'm a mechanical engineer. My resident electrical engineer didn't ever work on power supplies, so we don't know the answers to these questions. If you do know the answers or have another theory, I'd be very curious to know how the power is being handed off between these devices. I'm happy now because my setup is working really well, but I just really need to know the answer to this. It's going to bother me forever. Now, I know this one got a bit deep into my setup and may not apply to any of you, but I'm always glad later when I refer back to articles like this. Invariably, something will change in my environment. I won't know how my stuff is working, and I'll need to go back and ask ask myself, now, how exactly did I have all that plugged in when it was working? When the first generation AirPods came out, I loved them. They fit my ears and they sounded just fine for podcast listening, which is my main use for them. But after a while, my first pair started having problems with charging. I always charge the case while I'm on my long afternoon walks and I wear them for those walks and my runs in the morning. But some days I'd pull an AirPod out of the case where it had been charging overnight and it would say the battery was dead. I'd put it back in the case, close it, count maybe to two, pull it out, and it would show that it had at least 80% charge. It was dumb, but at least they kept working. I was willing to live with the fiddliness, but after a long while of this nonsense, even putting them back in the case wouldn't magically heal them. By that time, the darn things were out of warranty. I was willing to pay for a replacement, but I had no way of determining whether it was one AirPod, the other AirPod, or the case, because it seemed to be switching. I finally paid to have one of them replaced, but it didn't solve the problem. So I gave them to Lindsay as spares. I bought the AirPods Pro to replace them. And while I never had the same charging problem, they just really didn't fit my ears. I finally knew the pain so many others had with the original AirPods not fitting in their ears. AirPods Pro simply squirt out of my ears slowly, but they just kind of ooze out. It was frustrating and resulted in picking up my AirPods from the ground pretty often. Luckily, Frank Petrie told us about the ear hooks from Chargin, along with their AirFoams Pro Active Ear Tips that he mentioned again just last week, and that combination helped a lot. Chargin definitely solved the problems that Apple created with the AirPods Pro for me, like I said, at least for my earlobes, but it was a hassle to use the ear hooks. With the ear hooks on the AirPods, they don't fit in the case, so I had to put them on and off every time I wanted to go for a walk or a run. 
I finally broke down and bought another pair of original generation AirPods, and I was so happy. They fit, they were easy to pop in and out, and life was good. Until the exact same problem started with them as the first pair. I'd take an AirPod out, and it would say it would have no charge. I couldn't believe it was happening again. I actually talked to uh, tech support at Apple, and the, and the woman said, are you sure you're putting them in the case right? It is, if you've ever, I don't think it's possible to do it wrong, but she had me doubting because how could this be happening again? And I, I can't remember exactly, but I swear this is the third pair I've had, but I can't remember what happened to the second pair. So I'm not sure, but I think I've had three of them do this because, so it seems to me this must be a design flaw because I can't just be that unlucky. Well, anyway, with this second or possibly third pair, I was planning to call AppleCare since they were still in the warranty period this time when I wore them to the beach for a run and they died on me. I took them out of my ears and I put them in my spy belt with my iPhone. It's a little elastic belt that I wear around my waist. Somewhere along my four mile run, I pulled out my iPhone, probably to take a photo of a cute dog. And when I got back to my car, I only had one AirPod. I couldn't believe it. Here I have a defective set of AirPods, and now I can't even get my money back or get them replaced. I drove back down, to, I, I walked back down to the beach. I walked up and down where I started my run. I got walked all the way back to my car, drove to the other end of my run, walked back down to the beach at that end, and I walked back and forth, and I couldn't find it. I wasn't willing to run four miles again to try to find out where I dropped it. So I added to my to-do list in November, on November 1st, that I need to call Apple to order a replacement. But you know what? I haven't done it yet. I'm still angry that I'll have to pay for a replacement and only then be able to get them fixed or replaced under warranty. Evidently, my plan is to stay angry and procrastinate until they fall out of warranty. Well, while I'm busy procrastinating, I went back to the AirPods Pro and the charge-in earhooks. It made me sad. They work, but they're not comfortable. I still have to shove them back in my ear from time to time because they start to ooze out a little bit, even with the charge-in modifications. But then something wonderful happened. Santa brought me a lovely new alternative, the Beats Fit Pro from Apple. I think I may finally have the solution to all of my problems. Let's start with the main problem to be solved, keeping them in my ears. The Beats Fit Pro have very small built-in ear hooks that fits the inner part of your ear to stay in place like outside your ear, but you know, inside on the earlobe. That means I have the advantage of the charge in ear hooks without any kind of hassle. I know everyone's ears are different, but if AirPods Pro squirt out of your ears, this might be the solution you need. Since Beats are from Apple, they, su they sport the H1 chip just like AirPods, which means you get the smooth connection experience you've come to know and love. Open the case and up from the bottom of the screen on your iPhone pops a graphic of your Beats headphones with the charge status of the case and the earbuds. Well, it pops up at least as often as the AirPods ever did, which in my experience is about 67% of the time. Now here's another thing. At $199, they also cost $50 less than AirPods Pro. Not only that, they come in actual colors. Sure, three of the options are monochromatic with Beats Black, Beats White, and Sage Gray, but they also come in stone purple. Take a guess which color I asked Santa to bring me. I can say with authority that the stone purple is gorgeous. It's kind of a light lavender, and that color ensures that Steve will never steal them from me. Beats, Foot, Beats Fit Pro also have active noise cancellation, just like the AirPods Pro. With the Beats Fit Pro in your ears, if you open Bluetooth settings and tap the little eye icon next to the paired headphones, you can do a fit test just like with the AirPods Pro. 
The fit test plays some audio into your ears and tells you whether you've got a good enough fit to do effective noise cancellation. When I ran the fit test, it suggested I try a different size of ear tips. I have to confess that I hadn't even noticed that there were different ear tip sizes in the box. I put in the small ones, and now I have an even better fit, and I pass the test. I think that the Beats may have even more effective noise cancellation, but it might be because they fit so much better in my ears. The charging case for the Beats Fit Pro is a fair bit larger than the AirPods Pro case, but at least it still fits easily in my purse. I imagine if women's pants came with pockets, it would fit in them as well. The slightly larger size case is a sacrifice that I'm willing to make. One thing I'll miss a little bit is being able to drop the AirPods Pro case on my MagSafe charger, mostly because it was the only thing I've ever used the Apple MagSafe charger for. In my experience, I find that iPhones work much better in easel stand MagSafe chargers, so the poor puck version from Apple has been mostly neglected. The sad thing is I only figured out the AirPods Pro case charged on MagSafe pucks about two months ago when I heard it mentioned on the Mac Geek Gab. The Beats Fit Pro case charged via an included USB-C cable. It's really short though, but uh, that's great because it's a modern connector and I guess I can suffer through not having wireless charging. Now, Steve has been sporting the Beats Power Beats Pro for a few years and he really loves them. They're a bit different design than the Fit Pros. The Power Beats Pro come with hooks that go around the outside of your ear rather than the inner part of your lobes. He finds them fit him well and stay in better than any he's tried. I bring up his headphones for a very specific reason. Occasionally we go on walks together, and when I interrupt his podcast listening, he reaches up to his Beats and very quickly manages to pause his podcast. I can do it with AirPods, but it takes a second or so to either accurately double tap on the OG AirPods or to squeeze in the right place on the AirPods Pro. I've always wondered how he does it so quickly. When I got the Beats Fit Pro, I figured out how he was so quick at it. Turns out with Beats headphones, the whole side of the earbud is this giant button. If you can find your ear, you can find the pause button. It's the simplest method of all headphones I've ever used to pause and play. Also, like AirPods and Bluetooth settings, you can change the button behavior for a tap and a long press. I am absolutely delighted with the Beats Fit Pro. They don't fall out of my ears. I don't have to retrofit something in them to make them stay in. The sound quality and noise cancellation are great. They're less expensive than their sibling AirPods Pro. And they're purple. You know who rocks? The three-year-long patrons of the Podfeet podcast. That's who. Helma Vanderlinden, Dean Elger, Greg Hatfield, Aristides Skamagakis and Klaus Wolf have all been supporting our work here since 2019. These lovely people went to podfeet.com slash Patreon and clicked a couple of buttons, looked at their options, and decided what amount of money reflected the value they have gotten from the show and hope to get in the future. When you go there, you can put in a dollar per show, and of course, you could put in much larger numbers if you like, but you can also limit your monthly outlay to what you can afford. If you can't afford to support the show financially, you definitely don't have to. The content will continue to be free as long as I'm able. But there are significant costs associated with doing the show, and it's great when people help offset these costs. My thanks again to Helma, Dean, Greg, Aristides, and Klaus for their support of the Podfeed podcast. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Shots. How are you today, Bart? I am great, actually. Um, I got to exercise entirely with the sun on the right side of both the horizon and the clouds. 
This, <laughs> this is a rarity in January in Ireland. Well, so wait a minute. So what is it normally... Like, you, it'll be sunny, but it'll be sunny. How is it sunny on the other side of the clouds? That doesn't count as sunny. Well, it'll be a moony, I suppose, uh, which is still better, because then I don't have to rely as much on my bike lights. But no, like, it, at this time of the year, when I get up in the morning, it's still dark. And when I finish work, it's already dark. So, you know, my morning walk is in the dark and my evening cycle is in the dark. Uh, but today... I got to cycle in the daylight and it was sunny and it was nice. And um, I, I don't know, it's one of those, you know, sometimes you get in the zone. Sometimes yeah, it just all yeah. comes together. It's like I ended up doing a three hour cycle. When I got home, I had more energy than when I left and I burned a whopping 1,550 calories. Holy cow. Now, given That's it's my it. birthday tomorrow and I have a, some really nice I was going to say that. You weren't supposed to lead with that. Happy birthday, Bart. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> ooh, I will be, oh, I'll be Douglas Adams' age. I'll be 42, meaning of life, the universe, 42. and everything. Oh, there, we'll remember that one. The one thing I want to say about exercise that I find really interesting is if you go out and have this great cycle day where you just feel like a, a million dollars, you feel like you could ride forever, your brain says, well, that's never going to happen again. <laughs> but the days that it's a slog and your legs feel like like concrete and it's really hard, you think, oh, I'm old, I suck, I'm fat, and I'm never going to be able to do this again. <laughs> it's so true. You're right. You think, oh, my God, this is what people like every day. And then good days, it's like, well, this is a one-off. But anyway, yeah, today was a good day. I, I, I had great fun today, I have to say. Well, that's good. All right, should we kick in? Okie dokie. So starting off with some feedback and follow-ups on our longer-running stories, um, there is some log for shell stuff bubbling away in the background. Um, I'm not going to report on every nuance because, frankly, it will be a full-time job. I believe there's now an update to the update to the update to the update to the update. I think that's five of them. Um, you know, as we've seen before, when attackers find a piece of code that has not had enough TLC, you won't just find one vulnerability. They'll they'll hammer away at it and find loads. And that's definitely what's happening here with Log4j. Um, but what is of note is that um, there's a JavaScript, uh, sorry, a Java-based SQL database called H2, which embeds a bunch of Log4j functionality and is now also vulnerable to Log4Shell. So that's another, if you're searching your dependency tree for Log4j, well, you should also search for H2 because okay. you may have it that way too. And then the other one that caught my eye was uh, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission issued a press statement that was short and pretty to the point, basically saying, if you are an organization and you have Log4j and you haven't patched it and you suffer some sort of data breach or whatever, you will be sued, basically. Or we, sued by whom? By the Federal Trade by the Commission. FTC? Yeah, for failing to perform your fiduciary duty to protect your customers. It's like you have a responsibility not to be negligent, and it really would be negligent not to patch log4j. I don't understand that. Okay, remember Equifax? It... They got into trouble because they didn't do the basics of basics of patching their Apache struts. Yeah, they didn't get any trouble for that. They did, actually. They, they got lo- fined a big chunk eventually. It took years, but they did. And the okay. FTC are basically saying, yeah, log4j is one of those. So they've decided there's some category of bug that is so bad, vulnerability Mm. that's so bad and so... Something about it is making this one bad, not any other breach. 
That's no, that's not the way to look at it. You, it is a reminder that you have a duty not to be negligent. Yes, you could be the victim of crime, but if you have been negligent, you are you are the victim and also criminal yourself. So, if you knew left the back door open knowingly or unknowingly, on Mm. this particular vulnerability, well, no, what they're saying is this one is so bad we will consider this negligence if you don't do this. Okay. Okay. And it's so much in the news, you got to really have your uh, snooze hat on to not notice that there's something you should be doing. Right. And it would be if you were a company using technology and you are not aware of this, then you are being negligent. (laughs) So Sally's Pizza Shop with 30 customers a day has a a, a website with forms that can be filled out that have Log4J on the back end. She's going to be sued by the Federal Trade Commission? If she were to suffer some sort of breach that caused enough harm to actually damage consumers, then sure. But there's a problem there because I don't think she could do damage. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Like, that's the way it should be. Yes. It just seems like an odd... Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Yeah. Basically, the, the FTC took it as an opportunity to remind customers that they have a responsibility. Okay. It, it's yeah. not okay to say, yeah, but we were the victim of a crime. It's like, yeah, but you do also have to do, you actually do have your own responsibilities. You have to lock the door. Right, at least try. <laughs> at least have a go. Actually, um, that reminds me of on, uh, uh, a thread of some local neighbors. Uh, this woman posted that, that her car was broken into and described what happened. And then at the end said, I guess we have to start locking our doors. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Is your, I mean, her street is right behind me. Apparently it's 1956 on her street. I, I don't know. I was just like, that doesn't count as breaking in. That counts as they opened a door. Yeah. You know, you, you taped an invitation. <laughs> I mean, technically speaking, it is still a crime to enter someone else's vehicle without permission and take their stuff. But you do kind of need to do. Put a little friction into the system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, morally you speaking. Me- you live out in the country, sure, but that's not where I live. Yeah, so it's very sweet that up until now, <laughs> your neighbor has been able to live like that. That is rather sweet, yeah. but not realistic, yeah. indeed. <laughs> um, recently, it may even have been on the very most recent uh, security bits, uh, we talked about the fact that the UK uh, Competition and Market Authority had decided that Facebook must divest itself of Giphy. Oh, right, right. Um, and Facebook, we, you know, we all assumed Facebook would sue or would do something, would appeal, would, would in some way respond. Uh, we now know that they are going to take their case to something called the Competition Appeal Tribunal, which is a very fancy sounding name. Um, but that is apparently the appropriate UK venue. So off they go. Oh, we should start saying meta now, because it, it wasn't Facebook who bought goof, uh, Goofy, Giphy, right? It was, <laughs> well, it was then, but it, it isn't it now. It was then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the show notes say meta, nay Facebook, which I think is the way we're going to have to do it for a while till we get used to it. Yeah. Or or the uh, the company formerly known as Facebook. Or, yes. No, the, the company formerly known as the Facebook company. Yes, exactly. I was, I was going to say, which sounds a bit repetitive, but it's slightly cool. Uh, it sounds like Prince. Yeah. Um, And if you're curious as to the grounds they're appealing on, uh, Reuters have a little bit more reporting. I say a little bit more because Reuters say that they have six grounds and then they proceed to give a one-sentence description of what seems like one ground to me. 
But oh. uh, anyway, they say that they're wrong on the facts and the law. <laughs> so uh, we okay. shall see how that goes out in the Competition Appeal Tribunal. But anyway. Um, and I think we mentioned in the wake of Pegasus that other similar companies were doing their absolute best to keep their head down in case anyone noticed them. Well, at least one such company has not succeeded in keeping their head sufficiently down. Uh, a Saudi human rights activist represented by the EFF is suing Dark Matter, who are a similar company who make similar spyware products, um, for violating US anti-hacking and international human rights laws. So, makes sense. Interesting. But it's a Saudi humans, human rights activist represented by the EFF mm-hmm. about US anti-hacking and international human rights laws. That's right. So cool. It is kind of cool. And it's, again, yeah. another example of the EFF doing the kind of things that I like the EFF doing and why they get money off me every year. They should go out of business because I don't like that they, they're using the word dark matter. That should be for physics. It's not a bad description of good spyware, I guess. You yeah, know, no one sure knows what it is and you can't find it. <laughs> but you know it's there. But you, you know it's there. The, the yeah. effects around it, right? Yeah, yes, actually, you see, 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 it is a good name. Physics nerd humor. <laughs> yes. Um, I have one semi-deep dive for you, but there was nothing deeper, so I figured I'd promote this to a deep dive. Uh, this is actually a fascinating new approach to iOS malware. I will start off by saying, don't panic. The sky is not falling. Yes, this is interesting. No, this is this is not the end of all security ever, right? But uh, it is a very interesting sort of fake it till you make it approach. So I, I have a TLDR at the top. You're not likely to fall victim to this vulnerability unless you're a very high profile target. And even if this is not a bug that lets malware... Oh yeah, and even then, this is not a bug that lets malware in but that lets malware that got in some other way do more bad things than it could before. So the best defense is not to let the malware in in the first place, therefore patchy, patchy, patch, patch, right? But let's dig deeper since we're nerds and we like these things. Mm -hmm. So attacking iOS is hard, right? Because it's a defense in depth strategy. Apple have layers and layers and layers of security. So if you find one vulnerability, it probably doesn't get you very far. Right. So if you find a remote code execution, you can't do anything because there's a sandbox. So you have to find a hole in the sandbox. When you get through the sandbox, you can't hijack system level stuff because you're using address space layout randomization. So you've you've all of these layers of protection that you have to break through. So you've got to that's why when people win stuff against iOS um in Pwn to Own, it's an exploit chain, is the phrase you'll hear because I need okay. to find lots of exploits to string together and get through all the defenses. And probably one of the strongest defenses in that whole chain, and one that is not broken, like even Pegasus doesn't break the strongest defense, which is secure boot. An iOS device, when it's booting up, cryptographically checks what it's about to boot to make sure it hasn't been tampered with. Oh, okay. And okay, the I've heard of secure boot. The effect that has is that malware can't persist. So if you okay. get something icky on your iPhone through an exploit chain, if you reboot your iPhone, it is guaranteed to be back where Apple left it because of secure boot. The OS. Yes. Yes. You could exactly. have something you could still have something icky in an application, right? Yes, because the app wouldn't be covered by secure boot and, you know, dodgy right. data okay. or whatever. But 
you know, so sure. basically what it means is that if, you're, if your device has been compromised and is running some sort of spyware that's turning on your cameras and things, if you reboot it, it ain't running no more because it's just poof, right? It's gone. Okay. Okay. So, and attackers want persistence. That is, you know, they, they don't want to have to hack you every time. They want to hack you once and have you hacked forever. So persistence is definitely something the bad guys want. And there's a new vulnerability that's been named No Reboot, which gets persistence without getting persistence. Right? It's literally, they fake it till you make it. They have found a vulnerability which allows them to intercept the reboot command. And then they play an animation that makes it look like the phone is shutting down. They turn off the screen, they turn off the haptics, they turn off everything so the phone looks dead. But it isn't dead, it's still running. And they can continue to use the microphones and the cameras and things, and they're, they're, they have persistence. And then when you press and hold the power button, they play an animation that makes it look like your phone is booting up. And so you think okay. you've rebooted your phone. Before you go any further, I, I do want to give a shout out to Marianne, who uh, posted in our Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack in the Security Bits channel, uh, a video animation of this being done. And uh, and I I don't know that whether you saw her message, but I said, oh, this looks like poppycock. So apparently it's not. No, no. It's there was a- no data on this on this web on this YouTube video about what the vulnerability was, how it was being done. It was simply a video demonstration by somebody called ZekOps. And they yes. were selling ways they were going to protect you from this happening. Yeah, so the, the vulnerability is real and is being reported otherwise. But yeah, the, that video was a bit on its own. Um, I actually saw the video after I'd written the deep dive, but it was really nice to see what I had been describing because I, I watched the video afterwards to make sure in my description in the show notes wasn't poppycock. <laughs> right. Maybe I'll put, a, I'll put a link to that. Do, do, yeah. So people can see it. The um, So to make sure we're clear here, uh, they haven't gotten around secure boot secure boot is still there they've just figured out a way to keep you from rebooting and giving you an animation that makes it look like you rebooted exactly so okay one so apple are obviously going to fix the the vulnerability they're using to intercept the reboot command and stop it happening right that's 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 an obvious bug in the os that needs fixing so this this exact implementation of this idea will go away but it's an interesting new idea, and I'm sure they're going to be looking for other vulnerabilities to try and intercept the reboot process. So, you know, the idea isn't going to die, uh, even if this specific incarnation of it does. And obviously there is still a way around this, but it's a, lo- it's a lot more involved than just rebooting your phone, and that's letting your battery drain. Right? Because this thing can't fake electricity. Right? If your phone runs out oh, of power, okay. it is going to actually reboot. Oh, okay. Okay. So you could, there is a way around it. There is a way around it, but it's not practical, right? If you're a journalist or uh, some sort of activist and you are worried, it is really good advice to regularly reboot your phone. And now there's a chink in that advice. It's still good advice because they're still going to get rid of an awful, awful lot of malware. And once Apple do patch this specific vulnerability, it's probably going to stop this problem for at least an indeterminate amount of time. But it's it's not as good a defense as it was up until now. Okay. okay. As I say, sky is not falling. I think it's very clever. Um, but again, just to underline the fact that this vulnerability is only useful as part of a bigger chain, right? The vulnerability doesn't allow malware to get in. 
This is only something that malware that is already in can use to make itself more powerful. So again, patchy, patchy, patch, patch, because if you don't get malware on your phone, then the malware on your phone can't hijack your boot process because there is no malware on your phone. Okay, so let me guess. The answer is stay patched so you stay secure. Yep, 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 yep. I mean, you know, I, I should almost have that like as a little button I push on one of those apps that people use to play <laughs> silly sound bites over and over again. But yeah, there that, you go. That is what it boils down to. So, you know, yeah. As I say, it was a, it caught my eye as an interesting new approach. You know, bad guys are deviously clever and I respect them, even if I don't agree. <laughs> yeah, because it does make and one of the things I disliked about this video was they didn't explain that it was faking the the shutdown. They sort of, I don't know, I got to go back and rewatch it. It seems to me that they implied that it actually was rebooting. I have a feeling the video belongs to a blog post somewhere and that the video wasn't meant as a standalone item, that the video was meant as an illustration that goes with some text that these same people have written somewhere else. It seems like an illustration mm-hmm. rather than a full-on explainer. Yeah, well, the, it was it was put up by ZekOps, and I followed the link there to ZekOps, and there wasn't a link to an article. It was, uh, it, maybe they have it in an article, but it was a big old ad about how you should buy their services to protect yourself. Yeah, I mean, and not everyone is good about reverse linking, so, you know. Yeah. It's hard to know. Anyway, the, the video was nice to see, though, because it was good to have a visual view of what it looks like as well as reading it. Because I was just reading about it in text and listening to about it on podcasts, so I did enjoy watching it. Well, I enjoy, yeah. you know, it was, it was informational to watch it. <laughs> um, strangely enough, we have no action alerts. There have been no critical patches that I know about that you should imply. So let's jump on to worthy warnings. I am very sorry to say that... T-Mobile has suffered another data breach. Mm. This one is different because it affects fewer people, but much worse. So the people who were affected either had their account data, which is low-level stuff, um, like their... Can have enough detail to do some... It's like low-level networky information about their account... And also some victims had their SIM card swapped or both. And I'm sort of thinking that those two are not unrelated. My thinking is that low level data was enough to do the SIM swaps. Okay. Okay. Um, Gave them the the information to make the call to to social engineer their way through it. But I'm guessing, and the reason I'm guessing is because T-Mobile is refusing to give out even the most basic details. Like, for example, how many people were affected? or what happened, and how they're addressing the problem so it doesn't happen again. None of that. Literally, the most they are saying is a very small number of customers. And it's... So... That's that's not what you're looking for. We've we've forgiven everybody who says, okay, here's what I did, I screwed up, or I, you know, this, this is what happened, here's what we're doing to make sure it doesn't happen again, which is about the, the best you can get. Yeah, this is the inverse. So I'll be perfectly honest. If I was a T-Mobile customer, I wouldn't be. Wow. That's it's such... That's just not acceptable, you know? That's, yeah, I would just have zero confidence. Uh, and then I want to bring two bugs to your attention because they are known to exist, but they are not yet patched. Neither of them are catastrophic, set your hair on fire. But I think it's important to know about them in case you need to tweak your behavior for a while. 
So the first of them is a bug in iOS that causes Apple's Messages app to intermittently forget not to send read receipts. So, so if you have it set to not send read receipts, it just will? Sometimes. Sometimes. Huh. And no one... Okay. Last time I was... Okay, as of my last reading, no one has figured out a pattern. It just seems to sometimes happen. Hmm. And apparently rebooting the phone makes it not happen for a while, but then it might happen again, or maybe not. No one's quite sure. But it is definitely it is definitely the case that there are people who have definitely said don't send read receipts for whom there have been at least some read receipts sent. If that's important to you, if you have explicitly turned them off because there's a really good reason that you need them off, then I think you need to avoid the Messages app for a while and communicate through other mechanisms like, you know, your telegrams or your signal or whatever, because you can't know that Messages isn't sending read receipts. Now, I don't know that affects many people. Hang on, though. So let's say there's some reason I don't want you to know that I read your message. That's what this is about, right? Right. I don't want Bart to know. How do I not use messages if you send the message i think you don't send the message never no 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 no. it's not whether i send the message it's whether you send the message i can't change whether you send the message to me you can if i don't open messages i guess that's the best you can do yeah but if we don't know how it's intermittently doing it then you don't know whether it might just send them anyway well but if you don't read or not there's no read receipts right a read receipt would only be sent if you actually read so if you don't read the messages well do we know that if it's working improperly there is no reports of it sending read receipts when no one's read anything there are only reports of it sending read receipts when when it shouldn't Hmm. okay so at a coding level, the if statement inside the send read receipt function is not firing correctly. Hmm. Okay. Um, so that is, I don't, it's, I don't think it's affecting many people in, you know, other than being it being minorly annoying. Sometimes yeah. you may not want your boss to know that you were reading your email at 11 o'clock at night when you shouldn't have been, <laughs> but you know, it's, you know, mildly that annoying. Is, oh, to this day, one of my favorite uh, times, uh, I'm going to throw Steve under the bus. He hates it when I do this, but I'm going to do it anyway, where I remember we just happened to be up at one in the morning, which was very unlike us. It was when he was still working and his boss sent him a message at one in the morning and he returned it. And his reaction was, he said, yes, I won. And I said, no, <laughs> no you lost. He won. <laughs> yeah, he just lost big time. He ended up becoming, that guy ended up becoming president of the company. So uh, he was mm-hmm. he was a big guy to respond to, but still. Something to be said for night owls. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) So the other one to be aware of is a half-patched bug in iOS that could hypothetically end up with your iPhone crashing really quite hard um, to the point where you actually have to do a full factory reset to get back up and working. Uh, So it's not quite... Yes, people are calling it bricked. Yes, people not. are wrongly calling it bricked. It is not bricked, okay. but it is one step away from bricked. Um, so that is, it would definitely be an annoyance to have to start over from a fresh backup. Actually, no, to start over fresh from a factory restore, not even from a backup, and then have to rebuild everything from scratch. Like, it would not be pleasant. But it's quite easy to not fall victim to this. Okay, so at the root of the problem is that the HomeKit API gets itself into a complete and utter tizzy if you present it with a device name 
that has more than about 90,000 characters. Now, that's not going to happen by accident. Right? Yeah, how would that happen? Maliciously is the answer. If you go out of your way to set a stupidly long name, it will basically break HomeKit. And by default, HomeKit is included in that uh, control center menu you get when you swipe down or up, depending on whether you have a, a Face ID or a not Face ID phone. And that means that it's always running from the moment you boot your phone. So Wait, if this... What, what's always running? Uh, okay, so you know the control center screen? Yeah. By default, that has the home icon in it, which means home kit is running by default, unless you've oh. taken that out of your control center. Okay. Okay. Which means that if you get hit by this bug, as soon as your phone boots, it will load home kit and basically become unresponsive. And so you turn your phone off, turn it straight back on, and you have like two seconds until your phone is useless which is not enough so time to turn I, it off. I don't understand how somebody's going to add a HomeKit device. All right. Okay, so this is why it's not easy to get caught up on this, right? So the, you're jumping ahead a little, a teeny bit. Um, so when I say it's half-patched, they didn't actually fix the underlying code. They fixed the text box where you type in the name so that at least if you type in the name yourself, you can't do this to yourself. But the underlying APIs aren't fixed. So the actual more realistic way to get this to happen is that you install an app that asks for permission to access your home. You give it access to your home and then it uses the API to mess with you. So you basically need a malicious app. Okay. So how you protect yourself from this is A, don't do it to yourself. Don't give someone who would be inclined to do this to you access to your home. And if someone's going to prank you in this way, they shouldn't have access to your home anyway, because God only knows what else they're going to get up to with your home. And don't accept an invitation into a random stranger's home. Because if you accept an invitation to someone else's home, then their home is now in your phone and they could then do it to you. But that doesn't seem like a very likely way to attack people. But hypothetically, it is. Yeah, it doesn't sound like this is a super dangerous thing. It really, really isn't. But the guy who discovered it is trying to make so much noise and trying to make out that this is a critical vulnerability and how dare Apple not jump on this immediately. They've had months to deal with this and they've only half fixed the problem. And this is a scandal and that's just not appropriate. This is mean to do to the audience, but I'm going to drop into the chat in Skype a uh, screenshot part of my banking app. Um, When you give somebody money through Zelle in my banking app, you can put a little note to yourself. So I wrote a little note to myself, and it's not very many characters long, but at the bottom of the note, it says how many characters I have remaining to type. (laughs) And it is 20 (laughs) characters long, the number of digits that I have left. But the funny thing is, it's being triggered because I used more than 20 characters. So if you erase that, it uses exactly 20 characters, and that's how many characters you can actually use. (laughs) That's a bizarre one. There is something very wrong in there. Yeah, some. yeah. It's it's so if when I back out of that screen, it says something went wrong. The length of comment is invalid. So when I erased it, the thing that was in there was twenty characters, and back down below it says you get twenty characters to type. Some but if you put too many, confusion. it tells you can have. I don't even know how to figure out how big that number is. It's it's in the quintetrajillions. <laughs> that looks to me like yeah, there there's someone has a type confusion error in there somewhere. Yeah. yeah that's... Anyway, I thought it was relevant. Don't name your home kit item that. Yeah. 
Definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like I say, there was people trying to make this into a giant big deal. It's not a giant big deal. Just don't give don't give people you don't trust access to the devices in the house you actually live in, which I don't think I should have to say. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's funny. Anyway, and then I have a final um, interesting warning from the guys over at Naked Security. There is apparently a new technique being used to try to trick people into basically a new type of phishing. Pretend copyright takedown notices appearing to come from Instagram being used to try fish your Instagram credentials. Hmm. And given the amount of copyright abuse emails you may get if you're a, a you know, if you're an influencer or whatever, that actually might matter to you because if Instagram is how you make money, you actually might be, you know, they might trigger that bit of your brain that turns on the panic and turns off the rational thought. Which is what they're always trying to do, right? They're always trying to make you act in haste, make you act in emotion. Yeah, right. They're they're trying to turn off your logic and turn on an emotion, any emotion, right? Make you cranky, make you scared, make you happy, make you greedy. doesn't matter. Just somehow turn off logic, you know, because we humans, we work at those, you know, instinctive and thinking levels and make sure we jump to instinctive. So just be aware, just because someone is saying that you're in trouble for infringing copyright, there's absolutely no reason to assume it's actually from Instagram or YouTube or anything else, right? The the concept actually holds more generally. But right now, today, there is a space of this kind of attack going after Instagram users, targeting, obviously, the, the more active Instagrammers. That's just mean. It is just mean, but most bad guys are. Yeah. Moving on to notable news, I, I was, it's it's obviously very much still holiday season, I was struggling to find one piece of notable news, but to be honest, this is probably worth talking about given the colonial pipeline and other things that have happened. So every year there is something called the National Defence Authorization Act in the United States, which is basically a way that Congress gave money for security stuff. And it's not just Take, it's not just cybersecurity, right? It's lots and lots of security things, right? That's how you pay for the defense of the nation. And this year, in that giganto big bill, there is a bunch of IT-related stuff. Now, there was a real desire on both sides of the aisle for some of that cyber-related stuff to include a mandate with a duty to report or a duty to disclose on particularly infrastructure companies and perhaps also for, you know, loss of critical, basically your um, Equifax style, you know, catastrophic loss of personal information. That didn't happen. Instead, there was a voluntary code of conduct for infrastructure private companies, which people are saying, well, that's step one towards making it compulsory is to start off with it voluntary, see how it goes and then take it from there. And yeah, OK, fair enough. Baby steps, yada, yada, yada. But anyway, that's kind of the bad news, which I'm going to get out of the way first. But there actually is some good stuff in the other side of the coin, right? So one side of the coin is what private companies should be doing. But obviously, the other side of the coin in a Defense Authorization Act is the money that the government can spend. So... The Act does mandate CISA, which is the Centre for Infrastructure Security something or other, uh, the people responsible for the cybersecurity of lots of things, uh, they have been told they must update their incident response plan biannually. And that is one of those words I detest because I don't know if they have to do it every six months or every 24 months. 
That sounds like every other or every six months to me. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> uh, and they they also have to work with private agents. They have to work with private and government agencies to build an exercise program to test the response plan they're updating. So basically, they have to do some real world testing of this plan. You're going to love this part. I just looked it up. Biannual is occurring twice a year. Biennial, E-N-N-I-A-L, is every other year. <laughs> okay, I hope I copied and pasted that from the new story. Because I'll be darned if I know, if I read it and typed it, if I got it right. I would not have noticed that subtlety at all. That I is good have, to I know. I may have spelled it wrong. Bi- B-I-E-N-N-I-A-L. That's That's every other year. <laughs> okay. Well, inside the next they just Gov- hate us. Inside the next Gov article, they use the word. They use one of those two words. Whichever one they use in the article is what it says in the law. <laughs> Jesus. All right. I will double check it before Goodness. we go to uh, we publish. Good to know to be aware of that subtlety, though. Um, yeah, really. Uh, the National Guard are also mandated to provide cybersecurity support to critical infrastructure. So people, power companies and stuff are to be able to ask the National Guard for help. Sorry, it's biennial. It is every other year. On the government side, the law requires the Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency to biennially update the incident response. So it's every other year. Okay, I'm glad we checked that. Yeah, I'll fix that. God, the things you learn when Mm. you're... uh, And I'm going to put in parentheses every other year. Right, yeah, because otherwise that's, that's, yeah, like you said, that's one of those words that only a pedant will know. Although now I know, although I won't remember now, which is which. I wonder whether NextGov got it correct. That's another question. Yeah, did they copy and paste from the law? <laughs> I'm going to check one level deep before we... Uh, before yeah, I was going to say, where do we draw the line on this the rabbit hole? Um, yeah. There's also a grant program be, being established inside the Department for Homeland Security where private and public sector agencies or organizations can apply for funding to beef up their cybersecurity. So if you're running a power plant, you can apply for money to help you to beef up your security. You know, or if you're colonial pipelines, you might, you know, horse bolted, but you still might go in and apply for some grant money to help you uh, patch things up. Oh, yeah, and then we get to the bit I've already said, which is that there is no mandate, uh, just voluntary disclosure rules. Like I say, digging a bit deep here to find something to say as notable news, but it's not nothing. Well, wait a minute. So there's, there's there's no penalty, but it's a law? So the law gives guidelines. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah. They'll gum you to death with their toothless law. <laughs> yeah, but you know this is an annual thing, right? You have the you have a new defense authorization act every year. So hypothetically, this could be like you know a beta test of the yeah. of the reporting mechanism, and then next next go around, it could become a mandate, maybe. Well, worth campaigning for anyway. And the fact that there it's one of the rare things where there's you know bipartisan support makes me slightly surprised nothing happened. But obviously, someone was against it. Uh, in terms of top tips, I think it is a good time of the year to remind people to secure their iCloud, etc. So uh, the good guys over at Intego have a nice blog post on how to use two-factor authentication for your Apple ID and iCloud account. So Kirk McElhern actually wrote that. He's, he's a good guy. Oh, good. And then in terms of excellent explainers, um, we actually have quite a quite a few things here I think worthy of mentioning. Um 
just before we recorded, I saw in my RSS feed that Apple have released a white paper detailing private relay in greater detail than they have given us before. I read through it. Um, I, I was out for a bit of a bit of a walk before we recorded, so I, I read through it all while walking, and it it was well written, sensible. I didn't learn anything new because there was nothing in it that wasn't in the talk they gave at WWDC, which was excruciatingly nerdy. <laughs> but I watched that talk, and I'm sure some other you know developers and stuff did. But the public. Definitely we're not watching that talk. So basically, this is a humanized version of what was in that detailed tech talk from WWDC. So, you know, nicely done. Uh, Ken Ray does the Checklist podcast for Secure Mac, and their most recent episode, number 261, is a wonderful deep dive into legacy contacts, which is something we mentioned in the previous show. Um, and Ken really goes into great detail exactly how it all hangs together, exactly what your your surviving relatives do and don't get, or not, you know, your designated survivors, whatever oh, you want to call good. it. Designated survivors, that's a great description. Um, you know, it was actually, and it was nice to get all the detail, right? Because I was pretty, I knew the problem Apple were trying to solve and I had a pretty good idea how it all hung together. But Ken spends 20 minutes going through the more detail than I had seen before. And that I really, I enjoyed listening to it. So I hope others do too. Then... An article over in the Mac Observer caught my eye because Mozilla ended up doing an interesting about face. Um, they had a big announcement saying, we're now accepting cryptocurrency donations. And then a few days later, they're like, we're not, we're not accepting cryptocurrency donations because they got a whole bunch of backlash against cryptocurrency. And if oh, you're wondering really? why, uh, Andrew Orr at the Mac Observer goes into the problems with both types of crypto. So you have proof of work and proof of stake. Now, I have always known that proof of work is an environmental catastrophe. And I sort of assumed that proof of stake was a utopia. Well, it's environmentally much better, but it has different problems that I wasn't actually aware of. Because what it does is it rewards the people who have most, which doesn't help inequality very much. So there's people who are against it on an equality ground which I'd never even heard that argument before, so I thought it was interesting. And what also struck me about the article was that it is really, really hard to explain crypto clearly because it's complicated. And Andrew does, which means he really understands it because you cannot summarise things so well if you don't truly understand them. So I was genuinely impressed, actually, with how well-written the article is, given the complicated topic. Oh, interesting. Okay, so who did you say that was written by? I think it's Andrew Orr. I hope it was Andrew Orr who wrote it. Certainly on the Mac Observer. Um, yes, it is. Okay, good. Phew. Because Andrew is very good on the security and crypto stuff. So I, I want to give credit. Maybe um, as a really quick aside here, it's not mm -hmm. a security story, story, but you may have heard that uh, Dave Hamilton has sold the Mac Observer. Yes. To a new, a new steward. Uh, and I spoke with him. He's very excited about it. He said he's Ooh. fully confident that this uh, gentleman, I forget what his name is, Dr. Somebody, uh, <laughs> that he is um, extremely capable. He's been a longtime uh, Mac Observer person, and he's uh, he believes he'll take it to greater heights. He has great, great joy for it. But another in important subtlety to know is that Dave did not sell the Mac Geek App. And he didn't sell his other properties, the things that he does, his uh, his ad network or his uh, his other podcasts. So he is just no longer the uh, the king of the Mac Observer, as he likes to say, he's just a plain old podcaster now. <laughs> I 
he's done such great work in building that up. I hope I hope he got a lot of bank for that. Yeah, I, I don't it. know, um, but he's very happy. He's very so, happy. Good, uh, and, good, good, and, good. And he wasn't really looking to sell it. Uh, he was pursued, and the guy convinced him that uh, that he would be a good steward of it, and they're going to keep the existing staff on. And he, you know, he did say on his own show that, to be honest, he doesn't spend a great deal of time on it anymore. It's, it, you know, he's got it rolling pretty steadily with the along. staff that they have. Yeah. So uh, anyway, he's very happy, but the the Mackie Gab will will continue, which is something that makes me very happy. Excellent, and I mean it hasn't. It's not that it's just been ticking along because both uh, Charlotte Henry and Andrew Orr are rec- relatively recent additions to TMO, and they're both excellent. Um, Charlotte Charlotte does all of that she's entertainment fabulous. stuff that I'm terrible at. I I, I love <laughs> the fact that she's there to take care of that, and I don't have to worry my little head about it. Um, and like I say, Andrew's great on the cybersecurity, privacy, um, security stuff, all that. So yeah, I, the staff, the staff writers are great. Yeah, I, I would expect to see it grow. You won't wow. see this this dwindle on the vine. It's gonna it's gonna go the other way around from what uh, Dave believes is true. So super, that's good. it's one of my favorite news sources actually. So that's that's great to hear. Excellent. Um, and then I'm going off topic. Uh, my turn to go off topic. Uh, I just think this is an amazing post. Like, if you think there's something wrong with you because you're confused by USB cables, it's not you. It's USB. Mm. And I thought I understood USB until I read through this article. I love the title as well. US Befuddled, Untangling the Rat's Nest of USB-C Standards and Cables from Tidbits. Well, that's a good good place for it. It is fantastic. So if you're confused about what on earth is going on with USB, that article goes into all of the evil, evil details. Um, and it's it's well-written, quite humorous, despite being such a eh, topic. So I thought that was worth yeah. calling out. I, I still, you know, during the moments while I was actually talking to the gentleman from the uh, USB implementers forum, I understood all of it. And within about a half an hour, I couldn't replicate any of it again. I do like USB-C better than than uh, than uh, USB-A and the 48 different permutations there. At least it's got a good connector. That's what you can say about it. Right. One of the most <laughs> You don't know whether you're going to get power, though. You don't know whether you're going to get data. You don't know how fast it's going to be. You don't know if it's going to be Thunderbolt, if it's going to carry video. You don't know. But at least it's got a really good connector. Right. Which maybe that's its real evil, though. Is with that great connector, you expect things to happen, and when they don't... Yeah. One of the things I actually find coolest in the post is there's a giant big table of all the possible connectors and which ones could conceivably work together. And an awful lot of them simply can't. Right, right. So that, I thought that was good. Anyway, uh, interesting insights then. Um, Patrick Wardle deserves some sort of medal. Uh, over on his Ob- Objective-C blog, he has a spectacular breakdown of all the Mac malware from 2021. <laughs> oh, goody. He's got a timeline. He's got, like, little statistics on what type of malware it was and what its effects were. If you want to understand the big picture, what's going on in malware on the Mac, this one post will do it for you. And you can sort of huh. scroll... You, you can scroll through it and get a big picture of you, or you can dive in in detail. So, you know, it's a long post, but there's no reason you have to read it all. Um, you can scroll through and just check the headings and check the little footers where it describes the properties of each bit of malware. So, you know, you can get as much or as little out of it as you like, but it's an impressive piece of work. Um, so definitely worthy of a call out. 
And then just because it's cool, uh, and this was this also, I, I came across this a few different places, including our wonderful Slack community. Um, Honda have managed to find a Y22K problem. And I just thought it was kind of ha-ha funny, right? Yeah, you know, Honda cars start blinking back to 1970 on the 1st of January 2022. But the guys at Naked Security took that a little bit further and went, well, hang on a sec. Why? Why would 2022 cause that? The answer is GPS. And the details are extremely well described in the Naked Security post. It is very nerdy, but actually rather cool. So can you summarize what the, or are you going to make us read the whole thing? <laughs> um, okay, so at the heart of it is the fact that GPS has 1024 bits worth of weak counters. So it can only okay. count, and every time those counters go around, you have a new GPS epoch. And the GPS epoch seems to be what's at the heart of this, but it's not exactly the epoch because... The car wasn't released until 2003, so the, the GPS epoch would have meant that they lost you know, almost half of their 1024 bits. So they added a thousand days to shift it, and therefore you end up with the 1st of January 2022. But it's so the GPS what, epoch. What, I forget exactly where is that date showing up in, what is it affecting in, in the Honda's I presume it's a, it's a, it's the the dashboard, like the main console, because it's tied in. Basically, you can't set the time on these cars; they get their time from their navigation system. Oh, oh okay, okay. So every time you start the car, it's the first of January again. Oh, <laughs> is there a fix coming? Uh, Honda say that after August, it will stop happening. <laughs> but the sort the the. The article surmises that the date will remain wrong, but the time will be correct again. <laughs> but then someone else pointed out that because it's a thousand days, the chances are daylight savings time will be wrong, so the time will probably be out by an hour. Oh, gosh. Oh, that's horrible. I think you need to buy a new head unit. Maybe a nice CarPlay one. Yeah. You know, um, I'm certainly not advocating having to pay what we've paid for our, our uh, Teslas, but... I really like that when there's something to be done, I just get an update. I you know, The software just, updates are cool. What I don't think is cool, if I'm allowed to briefly jump on my on a soapbox here, I paid Tesla for, was it premium connectivity? What do they call it? Yeah. So what, what, it gives you the satellite, or you get the uh, cell, cellular, basically. Yeah, I get basically, I'm paying them for, right. effectively, I'm paying them for a, a dongle. You know, it's effectively the right. same as, as, as a MiFi card or whatever. Software updates will not go over the cellular connection I'm paying for. They only go over Wi-Fi? They only go over Wi-Fi, and my house is too well insulated for my Wi-Fi to get out to the car, so I have to take a 4G MiFi card and put it in the car <laughs> to get the car to update, and I'm paying... €9.99 a month for cell service, and I'm bringing in a second cell service to get my car to update. That's not right. Yes. But I do, I do, I do like that you get these updates, and uh, I, I, as a former Honda owner, the only other car I've ever owned was Hondas and Acuras, from, which are from Honda Motor Company. And I remember the um, very quickly the navigation system was out of date. You know, freeways mm. showed up that weren't right. there, dis- roads disappeared, things became one way. And it was $175 to change out <gasps> the DVD that was in the trunk 
to get it updated. Yeah, this is better. $175. And it was a DVD. It was like, you can press another one. You're just trying to. And so nobody used it. Everybody just started using their phones and that became obsolete. So they lost a big revenue stream there, I think. Yeah, revenue seemed they were too, they shouldn't have taken. That was just too greedy. Greed. Yeah, yeah, too greedy. Yep, yep. Yeah. Oh, I was um, I was talking to a neighbor who has one of the shiny new um, EVs from Volkswagen, the ID4. Mm. Ooh, those are, those are nice. They look nice. So I asked, yeah, so do you get software updates? And he looked at me as if I had 50 heads. It's like, nah, you Ooh. fancy Tesla people are spoiled. No, no, this thing, this thing is as dumb as any petrol car that Volkswagen make. No. So Why? all of a sudden, my because I have sort of been wondering, did I make the right choice? Model three should I have gone for an ID three? Nope, 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 nope. I made the right yeah. choice. I mean, stay patched so you stay secure. Right, right, and also <laughs> the fact that Volkswagen have been caught with their fingers in the cookie jar a little bit too often would have sort of put me off as well. I don't like, I don't like lying. Mm, is that? Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it was, it was very interesting that I sort of assumed that all EVs would be like the Tesla with their fancy pants software updates. But no, that is a luxury that uh, that only some of us get. Yeah. I, I bet there's other cars that do this. I hope so. And, and probably not ju- probably not just EVs. There's no reason other cars couldn't do it too. That is, that is a very fair point, right? Uh, if you put a nice fancy screen on a car and it has fancy software, it really should get updated every bit as often yeah. as your phone, frankly. I would think so. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, that was uh, an interesting aside. Uh, mm-hmm. The only thing I have left, though, is palate cleanser. So I guess we were done with the details anyway. Um, last time, I linked to some cool wallpapers showing the schematics of the iPhone so that you could have your iPhone have its own schematics as its background. Well, you can now have photorealistic innards or an X-ray view, both courtesy of iFixit. So... Last Times Link gives oh, you schematics. You can have a photo of the actual innards or an X-ray through an actual iPhone. And I'm not entirely sure which of those three is coolest. I'm I'm I'm, I'm very torn now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that does sound good. Well, you can change it anytime you want. I think that's what's going to happen. They're going to be all three of them sitting sitting in my wallpaper folder. I'm going to toggle between them. I think is is what's going to happen. Um, John Gruber had a guest on in his most recent show, which was Dieter Bone. And they were talking about a documentary dealer made, which is available for free on YouTube. So you can just watch the whole thing. It's called Springboard, the secret history of the first real smartphone. And it tells the story of Pam and Handspring and basically right idea a little bit too soon. It was actually a Mm. fascinating documentary. It was very well put together. They call it, it's a full documentary. It's 30 minutes, so it's not feature length, <laughs> but it is nonetheless complete and unabridged and well, very yeah, well produced. Maybe, maybe, maybe full is defined by that's how long it should take to tell this story, not yes. by, is it is it a movie? Yeah. But that's a good good one to have on the 15th anniversary of the iPhone, which is today. I don't believe that was a coincidence. I believe that documentary <laughs> is entirely because I can't believe fifteen years. Goodness, yeah, that's just that's just crazy, life changing. Yeah. I mean, well, and and right after now it's fifteen years right after they shut down BlackBerry. Those two things being in the same what week? I think pretty much. Yeah, the the, the BlackBerry and the service was Wednesday or something of the week just gone. It's very recent, you know. I, I Everybody would, said that the keyboardless thing would never, never fly. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, doesn't Steve Ballmer look silly? Well, he did anyway, but now he definitely does. Anyway, actually, you know what? You know what? The BlackBerry was the uh, was the DVD in the trunk Honda, with the <laughs> iPhone being the uh, the modern car that gets updates. Kind of was, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they they could have remained a player, but they doubled down on the wrong idea. That was the end of that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then I have two podcast recommendations, one from me and one from the Slack community. Um, so that was Dave Hay, by the by the way. In the oh, thank one. you. I, I had hoped to look that up and then I ran out of time. I, I sort of hoped you would. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my recommendation is a podcast. So I do this thing where I collect podcasts during the year because I know at the holiday season, a whole bunch of, you know, lesser podcasters to us will go on hiatus. And I'll end up with a big gap in my listening just while I'm off work and doing lots of cycling and stuff with lots of listening time. So I always have a bunch ready to go. And this year, one of the one in the bunch ready to go is a podcast called Malicious Life from the Cyber Reason Cybersecurity Company. Hmm. It's really good. <laughs> it, it, uh, I mean, I'm assuming it has a lot of back episodes. So I started at episode one and it starts by giving like a potted history of you know, self-replicating code, the first sort of, you know, state-level malware. There's a three-part series on Stuxnet. But it really goes into sort of the the motivations, the, the what's, the why's, the incentives. It's just, a, it's, it's not, it's neither set your hair on fire nor everything's grand because it doesn't try to be either of those things. It's the what, right what is happening what are the motivations driving the various actors it just really helps you understand the cyber world and reason about it i guess you know so anyway it's it's um and, and the guy who presents it has a, has a an unusual but fun accent so it, it's it, it makes for really nice listening and they're also sort of half hour chunks so it's not too not too heavy it's just little pieces so i i've been i think i'm at episode 25 or something so that's oh, wow. that speaks volumes. You know, I've never I've never done that start at the beginning of a of a podcast thing. I always start I just pick up wherever it is. It depends. If it's time if it's a time related podcast, I will do what you do. Right. So if I find uh -huh. the new podcast on science news, I'm not going back in time. Right. I'll just listen from now forward or tech news or whatever. But if it's evergreen content that isn't time specific, I will very often start at the start and make my way forward. Hmm. But I guess well, I guess it's if, if it's about the history of cybersecurity, hmm. then it then it, it it's not. This is why uh, log4j is important. Exactly, exactly. It's setting okay. a much bigger context. Okay. I also want to double down. Uh, I don't know if it was last time we talked or two times ago, but you recommended um, an episode of Sway with Kara Swisher. Yes. She interviews Frances Haugen from uh, Facebook. She's the one who did the Facebook papers. She was the whistleblower. It was three times as good as Bart even said. She is so impressive, such a phenomenal speaker and an introspective person has an interesting life. Everything, everything about her, she's like one of my heroes. I loved her. I thought she yeah. was fantastic. And of course, who better to talk to than Kara, right? The well, to get that, that out of it, even her. got interesting because they well they got they had a an interesting uh, dialogue at the very end where Francis Haugen or Sarah Fair I'll get it yet Kara asks Francis how would you uh, talk to Mark Zuckerberg today Would you like to talk to him And she said I would love to talk to him And she gives a very compassionate 
speech about how she would speak to him. And Kara's like, oh, yeah, man, you're way too good a person than I am. I would <laughs> never treat her that way. <laughs> and I, I, the other thing, it, it made me think back. I've told this story two or three hundred times, but I, I love the story. Is um, She was on stage with Mark Zuckerberg at the All Things D conference many, many, many years ago. And I was there. And this is the one where Zuckerberg started to melt down. He was sweating. And she she became very gentle with him as he was imploding. I mean, he was doing a terrible job on the on stage. And she even helped him off with his hoodie. That's how come we knew about that weird hoodie he had on and everything. And and she was just she treated him like a child in pain and not <laughs> she had him at a point where she could have gone in for the kill and she didn't. And I asked her why afterwards. Yeah. And she said, Oh, Allison, I just I just would have looked like the bad guy. That would have been bad. That wouldn't have worked. But I'm thinking, yeah, but if you had killed him then, yeah. <laughs> would be would we be where we are now if you would, um, no matter what sacrifice it was of yours? Anyway. Yeah. I, I am a huge, I, I love that podcast in general. She had, who did she have on this week? Um, yet the CEO of uh, Parlor of all people. Ooh, wow. I won't say I found myself in agreement with him. But I will say it was a fascinating discussion and, you know, one that I don't think you can have on most podcasts. It was a lot more frank and honest than most podcasts would tolerate. So it was, uh, I enjoyed it in a perverse way. I think it's probably the best way to say it. (laughs) Anyway, the recommendation from the community. uh, So from Dave. Dave Hay. um, A BBC podcast called The Hackers, which... It's not dissimilar to Cyber Reason, but it's much more about the people, right? The, you know, the human beings involved in these things. Um, I think the episode that, again, I'm making my way through all the back episodes. There's nowhere near as many, unfortunately, because it's a relatively new podcast. Uh, But today, as I was cycling, I listened to the one on Aaron Schwartz, and that sort of hit me in the feels. Um, That that, that was, yeah, that was kind of a heartbreaking one. so I guess maybe that's one, but that, it's a much more human. Um, it's not about the techie details, it's about the human beings. Um, so that that is, again, a very different take on the, the same sort of world. So uh, from the BBC, uh, very well produced again. Can I give uh, a recommendation that has nothing to do with technology on a podcast? Sure. Jill McKinley, who is a uh, uh, Nocilla Castaway, has been on the show, done a lot of reviews for us. She has a podcast called Start With Small Steps, and I think of it as kind of a self-help sort of thing, Um, but she reads a lot of books on ways to strategize for getting things done, for meeting your goals, whether it's uh, exercise or eating right or getting a, a getting a raise or organizing your life. She's, mm. she's really, really delightful and they're fairly short segments, but she said something in the most recent episode that I just, just was one of the most f- wonderful phrases I've ever heard. Uh, the episode is 69, let the reticular activating system fill your thoughts. <laughs> and uh, it, it, she explains what that's all about. But in it, she talked about how as a, as a young child, she was, um, round, shall we say. And she said, at the time, I thought, this is the shape I come in. And I thought that was such a, 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 a self-accepting um, phrase. This is the shape I come in. Yeah. And, and I don't know why that really, really struck me. Sadly, her grandparents uh, destroyed that, that uh, feeling and told her everything she couldn't do because she was fat. Told her she couldn't be in cheerleading because she was fat. Told her she couldn't be in Ooh. sports because she was fat. Oh, that's yeah, helpful. They, 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, she's looking back, she's saying, what if I had loved cross country? You know, what would I, what would I be, what shape would I be in now? So, uh, but she's one of the most positive attitude people I've ever met. She's fascinating. I love her show. It's, it's very joyful and interesting and she covers the gamut. So the podcast is called Start With Small Steps. Cool. I presume you'll pop that in the show notes as well, since we're... I will. What a bumper palate cleanser. That is... It's a, yeah, if you want, if you want happy, happy, joy, joy with a positive attitude, uh, Jill's, Jill's podcast rounds us out from the, the horrors of other things. Cool. Hey, not, not bad for a New Year's podcast, given this is our first one of the year. What a good way to start. There you go. All right, Bart. Well, this was a lot of fun as always, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Indeed we shall. Indeed it was. And until next time, remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me anytime you want at allison at podfeed.com? And lots of Nocilla castaways do. They ask questions. They tell me how awesome the show is. They compliment other people who've been on the show. So that's a lot of fun. You do that by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. If you have any kind of questions or a suggestion, just send it on over. You can follow me on Twitter at PodFeet, but you know what? Better yet, join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and Bart and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. It is hopping in there, but not too chatty. And Slack is really good because you can say, I want to join this channel, but not that channel because I don't care about that, but I care about this. And you can get notifications by channel or whether you've been uh, mentioned. It's really, really fun in there. Podfeet.com slash Slack. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You can support the show at podfeed.com slash Patreon like our lovely three-year contributors. Or if you don't want to do Patreon, you can do a one-time donation at podfeed.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.